When you're walking down the aisle at a grocery store, do you ever stop, look around, and think, how did all of this get here? I mean, you're surrounded by products from all over the world. From the raw materials, to production, to transportation, so many people are involved in getting those products and all of their packaging to the shelves, sometimes from across continents. Even if you're buying locally produced food, it still has to get to the store somehow. All that complexity means that when something goes wrong, it can have a huge ripple effect. And suddenly, that shelf sits empty. In today's episode, we're talking all things supply chains. What makes these processes so fragile? How has the pandemic changed things? And what can we do to keep supply chains working? I'm Amanda DeJong, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. Even though supply chains prop up our economy, they're mostly invisible to the average consumer. So let's start with the basics. Terry Esper is a professor of logistics at Ohio State's Fisher College of Business, and he's dedicated his career to studying supply chains. He speaks with our Ross Bischoff about why shortages happen, what companies are doing to prevent them, and whether we've entered a, quote, new normal post-COVID. Terry Esper, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Um, The first few times we talked, you made me fascinated by supply chain logistics. I don't think anyone could do that, but you may. (laughs) Um, Essentially, what you do is understand how products get into people's hands, right? Yeah, absolutely. And all of the steps necessary, right, to get products to the marketplace. Interestingly enough, it's one of those very interesting uh, areas of business that to the average person is somewhat invisible. Most people, when they think business, they think marketing or they think accounting or they think finance and money. But uh, supply chain has been one of those kind of silent entities, uh, kind of invisible entities that has been there for years and has been the, the the engine, if you will, that is behind how products get to the market and all of the steps that are necessary. So that's what we do. We, we research that, we, we teach that, and we observe what's going on in the marketplace. It's so interesting because in spring of 2020, mm. I had the most surreal conversation I ever thought I would have with my mom, mm. in which she called me up and said, we need toilet paper. Can we have some of yours? <laughs> my answer was no. And I think a lot of people were having those conversations. I think suddenly COVID hit and this was a really important topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we pride ourselves upon in supply chain and in logistics is that actually we don't want people to know that that we exist in, in a way, right? Because when things are moving smoothly, there's really no need to be concerned about supply chain issues because everything gets to where it needs to be and everything is, you know, uh, there on time. And so when we have really significant shortages that start to happen in the marketplace, similar to what we experienced with the onset of COVID, then that starts to bubble up this whole emphasis on the supply chain because we need some explanation as to why we can't get our hands on toilet paper. And that was just the beginning. And we're still here, still dealing with issues relative to potential shortages and potential supply chain hiccups. And I think, you know, what we saw with the onset of COVID is that, you know, the conversations about supply chain went from being more invisible to now being a a, a part of average conversations in average households over average dinner plates. Yeah. And what did COVID really do? It seemed to expose a lot of cracks in our society in a number Mm -hmm. of places, but especially with supply chains, what did COVID expose for companies? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I, I would say that there were maybe two major things that it exposed. 
Number one, the science of supply chain, if you will, is really it's a numbers game and it's based on projections and forecast. Right. So in supply chain, we're often very forecast driven, meaning if I can predict that Ross is going to show up to buy this bottle of water, then I can make sure that the bottle of water is where it needs to be so that when you arrive, it's there. And I've been planning for you to arrive for months, even though you didn't know it. Right. So we we're a very numbers and forecast driven entity and, and area. And by and large, we, we were doing pretty good. I think we were able to predict a lot of demand in the market. Our pr- predictions have gotten very scientific and uh, we're using very modern and advanced techniques to predict consumer and marketplace demand. And so we were ro- rolling pretty good. And I think we maybe took for granted the fact that there's always that factor of the potential unknown thing that could happen that could maybe throw all of those projections into a tailspin. And that's what COVID did, right? It brought along a big uncertainty and something that we perhaps maybe couldn't predict. And that just threw different things into the uh, mix of what drives consumer demand. And ultimately, we found that our supply chains just were not capable of keeping up with the way that demand patterns started to shift as we saw COVID emerge. So I would say that was the number one thing that COVID did. It really brought about some major uncertainties and, and things that we just couldn't predict. Secondly, though, I think it also exposed the fact that a lot of companies just did not have really good risk management and risk mitigation issues in place. Right. So, for example, one of the big issues we teach on is inventory and the importance of having safety stock or what people would refer to as buffer inventory. For a rainy day, just in case something like a, I don't know, a COVID hits, right? And and what we learned is that, of course, because we had gotten so advanced with our predictions, we were being very thin with our inventories because we could predict how much we needed. So there's no need for a lot of additional safety stock because our predictions are actually getting better and better. So we know how much we're going to need. Well, that rainy day fund, if you will, relative to inventory and excess capacity and those kinds of things, for a lot of companies, they just weren't there. And so... COVID happens, things go into a tailspin in terms of demand, but also we don't have much in the way of supply buffers to to support it. And so I think that was another one of the big things is that companies had to basically come to grips with the fact that they had not been really planning for any risk in their supply chains to the magnitude that was necessary to deal with something like a global pandemic. Tell us when we can get back to normal. Yeah, (laughs) that's always the big question. And I, I have always, Ross, said 2024. I just didn't think that we would see, you know, normalcy uh, to any real state in 2023. So I do think that we're getting back to some degree of normalcy in terms of how people consume and how people shop and what people buy. As it relates to the supply chains to get those products there, you know, we're still dealing with some of the effects and some of the aftershocks of COVID. And so I think that it'll be more more than likely 2024 before we will get back to that state of what we might even call normalcy. The, the only caveat I would add is that actually, from what I've heard from a lot of you know executives I talk to, they're like, yeah, we, we don't want to go back to the normal that we were at before. <laughs> right. So, quote, the new normal has emerged as well. So I think we're still trying to get our arms around what that new normal is and, and what does that look like. Right. So even to something we were just talking about a moment ago, inventory buffers, we went from focusing on just in time to now companies are saying, yeah, we, we're going to go more towards just in case. Right. Because we don't want to be caught in in a situation like we were three years ago. So there's the um, maybe a different mindset with inventory. But what is maybe the big solutions you've seen that companies are really kind of leaning into to 
make sure that this doesn't happen again outside of inventory. Like, yeah. So there's a number of things. I would say one of the major ones that I've been watching has been technology investment. You know, that became a really big conversation point. Uh, as many companies early on in the pandemic said, hey, you know, we were canoodling over trying to find some kind of justification for this technology investment. And we were trying to get some kind of business case to justify it. We knew that this was a worthwhile investment in this technology, but we were still just, we needed that uh, that business case and we needed to be able to show that it would approve uh, a worthwhile investment. And not that they're moving away from that, but I do see a lot more companies taking the plunge, saying, hey, you know what, if we can get to like 60% of uh, a feeling of, of assurance that this is a good technology for us to invest in, we're making the investment, right? And partly because, you know, what we started to see during the onset of the pandemic was this need for technology in many ways to supplement talent, human talent. And I know that's a real big debate, debating point, but the reality is that we do see that companies have either increased their investments or plan to enhance their projections on when they will invest in technologies like robotics, automation. We're seeing, of course, a really big boom in AI-based technologies to really assist in decision-making. And if you really think about it, a lot of this is uh, to keep their supply chains moving in the event that they have any other potential you know, public health crises and just the risk associated with such a reliance on human talent in some key areas. Secondly, companies rethought where they did things. You know, A lot of the companies that were immediately debilitated by COVID were the companies who had really gone pretty full speed in their operations in China, right? That's where the pandemic started. And that was where the, the companies that had didn't have much diversity in terms of where they were doing manufacturing product around the world, where they were distributing product from around the world. The companies that were really kind of you know all in in China had to step back and reevaluate that. So we have seen a lot of global shifts in terms of where companies are handling operations and migrating away from so much of a reliance on uh, China and Asia. We see a lot of reshoring coming back to the United States. See a lot of nearshoring coming back to near the United States for U.S.-based companies. And again, I think that's another one of those big solutions that came out of uh, the pandemic. Terry, fascinating as always. Thank you so much for doing this today. Hey, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been a delight. Now that we understand how supply chains work, let's talk about one specific material, rubber. Rubber is absolutely vital to our modern world, but the supply of rubber to the United States is precarious at best. That's why Katrina Cornish is sounding the alarm. She's an Ohio State professor with joint appointments in the Department of Horticulture and Crop Science and the Department of Food, Agricultural, and Biological Engineering. She's also an expert in rubber production and sustainability. Again, our Ross Bischoff sits down with Katrina to learn about where the U.S. gets its rubber, what could threaten that supply, and what she's doing to help develop alternatives. Katrina Cornish, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. The queen of rubber. Um, (laughs) Every time I've talked to you, you've had this incredible warning of a rubber apocalypse, and I want to unpack that a bit to start out. So first of all, just kind of start by telling us how dependent Americans are on rubber and petroleum-based products. We're incredibly dependent on natural rubber. It's used in 50,000 different things. There's no sector of our economy or defense that isn't completely dependent on a regular supply of natural rubber. It's used in 
all the vibration isolators, all our buildings, all our bridges, airplane tires are 100% natural rubber. There's 400 medical devices. Even a car tire is 50% natural rubber. And we produce no commercial rubber in the United States. It's all imported from Southeast Asia and a little bit from Africa. So we are completely dependent on foreign sources. The largest producer is Thailand, but there's the other countries that Indonesia's next, and then we've got Malaysia, Vietnam, some parts of China, Cambodia, uh, Southeast Asia. Then about, uh, that's about 90%, and then there's about 8% from equatorial uh, West Africa. So Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, and then there's a little bit uh, from South America, but this is the site of the endemic fatal Hevea rubber tree disease. Uh, so uh, very little commercially is produced there. Why is that such a frightening thing to have all our rubber produced in those countries? Well, we saw a piece of this with COVID, with all the disruptions of the supply chains. We had some companies flying rubber in instead of coming across on container ships. But we've all seen all those pictures, you know, 100 container ships unable to, to, to unload their stuff. And our manufacturers use over a million tons a year. And then we import in finished goods a few more million tons. So this is, this is a huge material. And because it's concentrated in one part of the world, politics can come in as a major player as well. So China controls, it doesn't know, but controls about 80% of the global rubber supply. If we really get at odds with China, you know, they could just say, well, we're going to buy all the rubber and you're not going to be able to get any. And now we're back to 1880. <laughs> no transportation, you know, no, no vehicles on our roads. If we can't make tires, you know, but there's all the other things we make. I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Where I don't want all the buildings falling down, you know. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but what would happen if China just said, OK, you don't get rubber anymore? Uh, fortunately, I'm not a politician. I would hate to actually assess what would happen. But certainly the U.S. would invest very heavily in domestic rubber production, which they did in World War II, which they did in the oil embargo years. But you can't have it quickly. You know, with limitless funds, you'd still take five to ten years to be able to replace everything that we currently use. Now, we can do it. Look, we put a man on a moon with a computer that wouldn't fit on the end of a pencil these days, you know, <laughs> in terms of computing power. So it's something that the U.S. can do. But we are reactive rather than proactive. If we can get to where we have 10% of the rubber supply domestic, then we could very quickly expand just in a year or two to 100% if we were cut off from tropical rubber. But it's a real challenge. You know, this is something that needs to be taken care of before something catastrophic happens. And we had a forewarning of this that was overshadowed by COVID. But in 2019, it was only six months when two leaf blight diseases jumped over from oil palm and spread to a million acres and seven countries in only six months. And that took out 10% of the world's rubber supply the following year. And 10% is about what we import. So obviously there's the geopolitical idea, but then the disease, which you just were talking about, explain how that happens and why that happens. Well, there's more than one disease that will infect rubber trees. 
Their real risk is that they're grown as clones, so they are genetically identical for miles and miles and miles of trees in contiguous plantings. In effect, they're plantations. They're all divided up into small holders these days, but they're still en masse plantations. And they're about eight feet apart. Their leaves are touching, their roots are touching, and they're genetically identical. So if one catches something, they all catch something. The big concern, of course, though, is South American leaf blight, which is also called salb. This is fatal, and it's been kept out of Southeast Asia by strict airplane quarantines. So you hadn't, until last October, you had to fly somewhere else, get on another plane, and then fly into Southeast Asia. But direct flights were opened up last October between endemic salb regions in South America and Southeast Asia. And... Maybe it won't happen or won't happen soon, but that certainly increases the risk of this fatal disease getting into the principal uh, rubber-producing region of the world. It feels like we're kind of tiptoeing on this trapeze of things could be a disaster at any moment almost. Yeah, if salt goes into Southeast Asia and they can't you know, basically you know, scorched earth uh, policy to try and control it, which they would do, they would do that, if it really gets into the Southeast Asia regions, you could lose half your rubber in a year and all of it, you know, 90% of it the following year. People who've seen Salb in South America say it looks like a fire front uh, going across this green forest of rubber trees. And it just goes across behind the front. Everything is black and dead. And in front of the front, it's green, but it just moves across like a fire front. This is one of the most important natural resources we have, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, in uh, the, the History Channel did a program on this uh, 20 years ago, and they said our four most important raw materials, natural resources, are air, water, petroleum was in there, and rubber came in number four. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we can produce rubber in the United States, correct? Why don't we? Money is the short <laughs> answer. And then climate change is not helping. This is a restricted species. It's quite fussy. We can't grow it in in Arizona. You know, this is this is a tropical tree. Top dollar, going back to why we don't grow it, top dollar is $300 a month. We don't have American workers who will work for so little. And then you'd only be able to grow it potentially in some parts of Florida. You know, this is a tropical species, not a temperate zone species. So we can grow Waiuli, which has been done in the past, and rubber dandelion in the States and others. Those are the leading contenders. But we have no processing infrastructure. So we've got farmers who want to grow these crops. We've got rubber manufacturers wanting to buy the rubber. But nobody so far has been willing to invest in the infrastructure to take the shrub, take the product, the rubber, out of the plants, shrub for Waiuli and roots for dandelion, and then so that a rubber company can then make it into things. So that's the missing piece. What's so amazing about your story is you have not only been talking about this, but you are providing the solutions, I think. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the crops you've developed. Keep talking about that and what you've done in your lab in Wooster. Well, in Worcester, we work both on the rubber dandelion, which is its primary focus, and also on Waiuli, which is my historical love, you know. And so with the dandelion, it's essentially a wild dandelion from Kazakhstan. So there's been a lot of work both on improving it, domesticating it with a whole bunch of colleagues up there. So we have to make it in a form that the farmer can farm. 
then the big challenge there is not only getting field worthiness and being able to reproducibly establish it by direct seeding, because transplants would be too expensive in the long term, uh, but also to control the weeds. So simply put, it's how do you kill the dandelions without killing the dandelions? <laughs> um, and then we've got other faculty who've been looking at both materials, properties, extraction processes. So we have a pilot plant in Worcester that can do both solid rubber from dandelion and latex rubber uh, from both dandelion and from Wayuli. And the latex markets are where the biggest value is. The other incredible thing is it's not just the crops that you've worked with, but you've actually produced products. You mentioned the gloves. Talk about that and, and what it's been like to actually use this sort of combination of understanding the crops and actually understanding how to produce a product from it. Yes, that's one of the most interesting things because you, you produce your material, then you have to say, well, what is my material good for? The radiation attenuation glove, we developed that because we observed that the Wayuli rubber can contain a lot more filler than ordinary natural rubber. And so we were able to put in enough attenuating chemicals. And because it's so soft and stretchy, there's more room to put stuff in it and still meet the mechanical performance requirements for surgical and exam gloves. So at the moment, the FDA says you wear two gloves, one to protect you from radiation and one to protect you from disease. So we can do the whole thing in one glove and then you take the cost of the surgical glove away and you end up being able to produce it with a raw material price of 10 times surveyor, but your profit margin comes out the same because you're not buying another glove as well. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing. Develop products that the market will be able to adopt without taking a financial hit. So what is your vision for this country? What could it be? Well, I would like to be able to drive down the interstates, past the fields of rubber-producing dandelions in the northern states and past the fields of Wayuli in the southern states or the southwestern states, seeing the occasional processing plant looming in the distance and have enough of these that we are self-sustainable and we are not dependent upon the goodwill of other nations for our rubber supply. You've dedicated your life to this. It's been it's a lot incredible. of it, a lot of it. Yes, yes, because I can see what the world would be if there's a catastrophic failure in the natural rubber supply. Anything else that we have seen it would just be trivial compared to what a loss of natural rubber is. It's such an amazing material that as soon as people started to use it after Charles Goodyear stumbled across vulcanization, it's become so useful and so irreplaceable. Katrina Corners, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for all your work. I mean, every time I talk to you, I'm just blown away. It's incredible what you do. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Supply chains are just one of many innovations that make up the background of our 21st century lives. And if all is going well, we don't really notice them. But people like Katrina Cornish and Terry Esper, they're always paying attention. And they're using their expertise to improve the way our world functions and to make sure crises like toilet paper gate are avoided. We don't know for sure what innovations will come next, what might shake up our lives. But no matter what, we'll always need experts keeping an eye on what's happening in the background. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu now. 
I'm your host, Amanda DeJong. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.